The following sermon is from New Life Baptist Church, where we exist to see lives transformed by the gospel as we make, mature, and mobilize disciples of Jesus. To learn more about our church, please visit our website at newlifeba.org. Well, most of you uh, have likely heard the phrase, Houston, we have a problem, right? However, some of you may not know the origin of that phrase. In 1970, NASA's Apollo 13 was intended to be the third mission to land on the moon. However, during their fourth day of orbit around the Earth, an oxygen tank on board exploded, causing all of the stored oxygen that they had to exit and to vent into the atmosphere or (laughs) into outer space. No atmosphere. Uh, and threatening the lives of the three astronauts on board. And so after this occurred, astronaut Jim, Jim Lovell, he radioed back to mission control and he said, what? Houston, we have a problem. And after hearing this perilous news, the mission control team at NASA's Johnson Space Center in Houston, they faced an incredibly improbable challenge of trying to get these three astronauts back Home, just think about it, right? You, you, you're no longer able to use your spacecraft. And, and so they're confined to their lunar vehicle that they were just going to use to move about on the moon. And so they use this lunar vehicle to get the astronauts back home. And, and so one of the most iconic moments of this story of trying to get these astronauts back home is when the engineers at Mission Control, they had to find a way to adapt the square carbon dioxide filters from the original spacecraft, right? Carbon dioxide converted to oxygen. They had, they had to figure out how to adapt the square uh, filters into the to fit the round ones used in the lunar vehicle, what was going to be their lifeboat. Without this filter, the carbon dioxide levels inside the lunar vehicle, they would have risen to lethal levels, killing the astronauts. And so the team, right, they, they gathered together. They worked quickly to develop a solution by, but the catch was this, they could only use the materials that were available to the astronauts orbiting around the earth. And, and so they get together and, and while, uh, you know, the, through ingenuity and tireless teamwork, the engineers devised a way to fit the square filters to the round adapter by using duct tape and all, and all, can all, and all the men in the room, can they say amen, right? You can fix anything with duct tape. But, but these engineers, brainiacs, use duct tape, plastic bags, and other common items. They were able to fit this square carbon dioxide filter to fit this round adapter. And so while the Apollo 13 mission appeared to be a failure on paper, since the astronauts didn't get to the moon, in reality, this was a resounding success. Because the team at NASA defied all the odds by bringing the astronauts back home safely. And so despite the immense stress, pressure, and challenges they faced, everyone worked together selflessly, laying aside all personal priorities and departmental uh, boundaries. They cut through all the red tape to focus on and to accomplish their one goal and their singular mission. And that was to get the astronauts back to Earth alive. The, the NASA team, they were united and literally bound together for weeks on end with a laser focus by their common objective and purpose. And, and if you haven't seen the movie, it's been a long time, so don't take this as a recommendation. I'll just say this. Th- this was popularized in the movie Armageddon, uh, I think with Bruce Willis in there. Uh, 
from my memory, good movie, but uh, uh, don't take that as a recommendation. But yeah, uh, anyhow, so, but, uh, but this morning we will see, though, not, not, not how NASA can get people back home, but how God, through the Apostle Paul, how he commands us to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. And this is the key to do so, and we do so pursuing and promoting and protecting gospel unity within our church. So just as the NASA team, they came together, they were united to accomplish their singular mission. So too, through our passage this morning, God is calling us to be united and to accomplish our singular mission in this world. And that is the Great Commission. With that being said, turn with me, your Bibles, to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. That will be our text this morning. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. The Apostle Paul, he says this. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would open our eyes to behold wondrous things out of your word. And that through this time that you would strengthen our unity. Lord, we thank you for how you have maintain the unity in our church and we just pray father that you would strengthen our unity strengthen our love for one another through the power of your word and by the work of your spirit we pray all this in jesus name amen amen first this morning we will see that we are called to walk worthy of the gospel and so as you know right we've been working through the book of ephesians over the past few months And so in chapters one through three, Paul lays out the gospel in great depth and contained in these three chapters are two separate prayers, one in chapter one and another one in chapter three. And so in his first prayer, Paul prays that the Ephesians would understand the gospel theologically, that they would be able to grasp these great doctrines of the gospel, that the truths of the gospel would take root within their minds and their hearts. But then in Ephesians chapter three, verses 14 through 19, Paul prays not only that the Ephesians would know the gospel of Jesus theologically, but that they would know the Jesus of the gospel experientially and relationally. And so listen, church, if we are to understand the fullness of the gospel, we need both to know the gospel of Jesus theologically and to know the Jesus of the gospel experientially we serve a living and a risen savior. And so now we transition right from, from that in verses in chapters one through three into the application part of this book. And so before we continue, I don't want you, you to miss or to confuse the order. And that is this. Paul intentionally shows us, even through the structure of the letter, that our gospel identity Knowing the gospel with our heart, soul, and mind, our gospel identity leads to our gospel living. Gospel identity leads to gospel living. 
And we see that in our text here this morning where Paul says, I what? Therefore. And anytime you're going to hear me say it all every time we come to this word. But anytime you see it, therefore, you do what? You go back and see what it's there for. Right. And so Paul is saying, in light of everything I wrote to you in chapters one through three. Right. Our gospel identity must always precede our gospel living or maybe another way to put it. And I'll define these words in a bit, but the indicatives of Scripture must always come before the imperatives of Scripture. Now, now just a quick refresher. Maybe it's been a while since you've been in English class uh, hearing those those words indicative and imperative uh, and indicative. It's a statement of fact. It's a declaration. It's it's telling you this is a, I went running yesterday. That's an indicative. While an imperative is a command. Sit down, right? It's a command. And so if you were to look at the book of Ephesians as a whole, there's only one imperative in the first three chapters. And there are over 40 in the last three chapters. What does that tell us? Paul is trying to say something here that before we focus on what we are to do in the Christian life, we need to first remember and to be transformed by what Jesus has done for us. We are changed by his grace so that we then live by his grace. Gospel identity, it precedes, it goes before gospel living. We don't want to get those two out of order or else we lose our foundation. But notice what else Paul says in verse one. He says, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And so this verse, it's really the foundational verse for the next three chapters. Paul, is, he's about to give us a lot of commands to obey, right? I said over 40 of them. They're coming. He's got to give us a lot of commands. But before he gives us the specifics, he is in essence telling us that our lives should be molded in such a way that our conduct of life, it matches the contours of the gospel. We're being shaped and molded by the gospel. The, the way we live and the way we conduct our lives, it is reflective of the worth that we place on the gospel. And, and so if we live lives seeking to honor the Lord, to please him, that's reflective of a heart that's been captured by his grace. But if we live a life that, that is just, okay, I'm just going to go through the motions, what have you, it shows that we have not yet really comprehended and understood the gospel. There was a season of life uh, when Noah was really into volcanoes. There would be times when we would just sit on the couch. We'd pull up YouTube on the TV and we would watch volcanoes erupt. One after another, after another, after another, repeat and again and again and again. He was obsessed with volcanoes. And so for his third birthday, I believe, someone got him a volcano kit This kit, it came with both a plastic mold and also ingredients to make plaster, right? So we could build a volcano. So we mixed up and made the plaster and then we poured the plaster into the mold. And so after the the plaster dried, we took the mold away. And what do you think was the result, right? The, The plaster was now shaped according to the mold. Or to say it a different way, the plaster now reflected the mold. How many of you, right, are, are a checklist kind of people? How many of you like to make checklists and, and, and check it off? Miss Rita, Mr. Don, Mike, uh, yeah, Megan, others, Jeremy, others. We, we, like, 
we like uh, checklists, right? So do I, right? It, it gives you a sense of accomplishment, right? And, uh, but, but listen, as Christians, we're not called just to start checking off the to-dos of the Christian life. No, we are first called to be molded by this infinitely valuable gospel, to be shaped by what Paul would say, our worthy calling to be actually to actually become more like Jesus in our thoughts, in our affections, in our attitudes, and yes, also in our deeds. We are to walk in a manner, Paul says, worthy of our calling, the rhythms, the habits, the patterns of our life, worthy of this gospel. Now, now that word worthy, it can have two different meanings, right? One way to understand this word worthy is to try to become better so that you can achieve something greater, such as a promotion at work, right? You try to better yourself so that you become worthy or deserving of a promotion. That's one way to understand worthy. But, but another way, in, in, in the right way in our text, the right way to understand this word worthy is to think about it as if you were a part of a royal family, right? A, a, a certain status or title has been granted to you. And so in response, you are then to live in accordance with the status that has been bestowed upon you. This is what the Apostle Paul is calling us to not, not to try to live in such a way that makes us worthy or deserving of the gospel, right? None of us could ever live a life like that. Biblically speaking, the only thing we deserve in this lifetime is God's judgment for our sin. Everything else we receive from him is by his grace. And so we can't live a life deserving of this gospel. However, we are called to live a life that is in accordance with the status and the title that we have now been given as sons and daughters of God. We are part of a royal family as sons and daughters of King Jesus. So just a quick refresher then from chapters one through three as to who you now are in Christ because of the gospel, right? Chapter one, verse one, it, it, Paul says you are saints now, right? Sainthood isn't just uh, confined to a venerate, a venerate status of people who perform a miracle and then they get uh, affirmed by a church. That's not what it, sainthood means. It means if you are in Christ Jesus, Paul says in verse one, chapter one, you are a saint, You have been sanctified by the blood of Jesus. You you are blessed with every spiritual blessing, Paul would say in chapter 1, verse 3. You have been become an adopted son or daughter of God most high, chapter 1, verse 5. You you have been redeemed and forgiven through the blood of Jesus shed for you, verse 7, chapter 1. You've been given heaven as your inheritance. You've been indwelt with the Holy Spirit. You've been given new spiritual life being resurrected out of your sin. You've been saved on the basis of Christ's work, not your own efforts. You're now God's workmanship. You are the masterpiece that he is fashioning. Chapter 2, verse 10 says. You've been brought near to God by the blood of Christ. You become a new creation. You've been been given access to the Father to approach him boldly and confidently. And end of chapter two, you've become citizens of God's kingdom, members of his household, and part of God's holy temple. You've been given wisdom to know the mystery of the gospel, and you have been made stewards of this grace. 
And so in light of this, who you now are in Christ and what you have been given. Paul urges us to walk in a manner worthy of this calling to which we have been called. Or or Paul would say it similarly in Philippians chapter 1 when he said, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. We are to walk worthy of the gospel, Paul calls us in verse 1. Gospel identity, it precedes gospel living. But, But secondly, we see this morning... That we're not also only called to walk in a manner worthy of our calling, but we're also called to maintain the unity of the church. Read with me verses 2 through 3. Paul says, that, walk in a manner worthy of your calling with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Well, now we're starting in, into some specifics, right? How do we live worthy of our calling? By living in unity with one another. Or maybe to flip that around a little. Church, if we are not seeking to live at unity with one another, we are not living a life worthy of our calling. Now you might be asking, of all things, why would Paul choose unity as the marker or the identifier to see if someone is walking in a manner worthy of the gospel? Well, if you go back with me to John chapter 17, the high priestly prayer of Jesus in this prayer, Jesus, right before his betrayal, arrest and crucifixion, he has one predominant prayer request for his father. And what's that? Let me read real quick. He says this, John 17, verse 11, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me that keep them, sustain them, preserve them, protect them, Father, that they may be one, even as we are one. And then verse 20, Jesus says this, I do not ask for these only his disciples, his 11 disciples at that time, but he says, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. In other words, Jesus is praying for you and for me. What does he pray for us? That they may all be one. I in them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. So why did Paul, of all things, he, he didn't choose unity, say, oh, that'd be a good thing. No, unity reflects God's work within us. And then go back, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 10, where Paul says that the end goal and the purpose of in the entire creation is that there is coming a time when all things will be united in Christ. Things in heaven and things on earth. And so listen, church, the work of the devil in this world is to divide and to destroy all things. But the work of Christ is to unite and to restore all things. The greatest testimony to the validity and the transforming power of the gospel is when a people from a diverse range of ethnic, cultural, socioeconomic, geographic backgrounds, when they come together as one people under the banner of Christ, Jesus. Jesus would say, and Paul would say it this way, that, that he himself, he is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility that he may create in himself One new man. Because we have been united to Christ Jesus by faith, we are now united to one another as family. 
So, so, so how practically then are we to eagerly maintain this unity of the spirit and the bond of peace? Well, Paul answers that. He says, right, with all humility, with all gentleness, with patience and bearing with one another in love. So those who are rooted in the gospel will be humbled by God's grace. And that humility, it will lead you to count others more significant than yourself. I know I've referenced Philippians 2 a lot in my preaching, but but this is such a crucial passage for us to understand how the gospel both empowers you and expects you to interact with your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And so I commend it to you and I encourage you to memorize it. But Paul will say in Philippians 2, he says, so if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, he says this, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. He goes on to say, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, what? Count others more significant than yourselves. He says this, let each of you not look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. And he says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though... He was in the form of God. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But Jesus, our king, he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of flesh. And Paul would say, in being found in human form, Jesus, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Tim Keller, who, who, who was a pastor in New York City for decades, and I mentioned him last Sunday, just, just two weeks ago, he went to be with the Lord. He said in his little book, The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness, and I plugged that one then and I plug it for you now. It's like a 30, 40 page book. Very good. But he said this about humility, that humility doesn't consist of thinking less about yourself, right? It, true Christian humility, it's not a kind of self-deprecating or anti-limelight kind of attitude, no, no, he said humility is not thinking less about yourself. Rather, humility is thinking about yourself less. Gospel humility it realizes that A, I have been crucified with Christ, that I have died, and therefore B, I no longer live for myself, but now I live for Christ Jesus as a servant to others. Remember, Paul, he's writing this as a prisoner for the Lord. And so following Jesus, listen, it will cost you. Dying to self is not fun, right? It is painful. Obedience will be painful at times. It may not cost you imprisonment, but following Jesus will always cost you your life. Because I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives within me. We have died and our life is now hidden with Christ in God. And so because of that fact, because we have died to self, we are then free to live for Christ in service of others. This is what true gospel humility means. And so when this reality, when it takes root in your heart and life, that as a Christian, life is no longer about me and that I am not to live for myself any longer. When your entire disposition shifts from being inward focused to now being upward and outward focused. Listen, life, the entire perspective on your life, everything changes. This is true gospel humility, where you're no, your heart no longer seeks to serve self, but rather you seek to serve one another. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself 
less. This is what it means to live out the gospel, right? Because do you remember our sermon from last week? That the son of man, right? Do you remember that, 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 that phrase son of man? It takes us back to Daniel chapter 7. The, the one who has all dominion and worthy of receiving all glory. The one who is the king of the kingdom. The one who deserves to be served and worshipped by all peoples, nations, and languages. Daniel tells us he came to this earth. Not to be served, though he deserved it. But he came to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. Remember, church, Jesus said that the disciple is not greater than the teacher. And as the father has sent Jesus, Jesus said, so I am sending you. And so if our collective heart disposition is set on serving one another with no strings attached, no kickbacks expected, no quid pro quo when, when we are set on serving one another from love, with expecting nothing in return, with all humility, gentleness, patience, and bearing with one another in love, then listen, church, we will maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. But listen, the, other, the converse is true. If, we're, if our focus begins to shift from serving others, right, to serving self, Then warning, right? Those warning signs on the side of the road. Warning, danger ahead. And admittedly, right, when there's a lot of change happening in a church and when we're seeking to head into a new direction, there will be differing opinions and disagreements at times along the way. And that's okay. And that's good. Unity does not mean uniformity. It does not mean that you just fall into rank and you do what you're told. That's not unity. That's authoritarianism, right? So we don't strive for that. We strive for true unity. There are going to be times when we have differing viewpoints or perspectives regarding a topic or decision in the life of our church. And that's normal. And that is good. But the key to all of this is when we disagree, when we have differing opinions, what's the next step you take? How do you respond to that? Do we respond by assuming the worst in one another or assuming the best by maybe complaining about something or by asking for clarification with something by being quick to speak and assert our own opinions or by being quick to listen and trying to understand the other person's perspective by being eager to insist on our own way or as Paul says by being eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in our church True gospel unity, it does not mean uniformity. Rather, it means that we collectively seek our gospel purpose and our mission above our own preferences. That we aim to help our church be faithful to its calling by fulfilling the Great Commission rather than following our own plans and fulfilling our own desires. It means that I view my fellow members as people I can serve rather than people who should serve me. It means not coming to this morning with the question of what can I get out of this, but by rather approaching our Sunday mornings and our times together, what can I give? And how do I benefit, but rather how can I spiritually benefit someone this morning? In true gospel humility, it means that Jesus is the Lord of this church. That this isn't the church of a pastor. It's not the church of a member, no matter how short or how long you've been here, right? No, Jesus, he is Lord of this church. He's the owner and he's the one who gets to call the shots. 
And so I just want to encourage you, church. How will you endeavor to eagerly, eagerly foster and maintain true gospel unity in our church? I want to hear, I want you to hear the word of the Lord. How are you doing with those verses two through three? Are are you including people into fellowship with you? Or are you excluding people from fellowship with you? Are, are, Are you using your words, your speech to build one another up, to encourage, to edify the body, or to tear other people down? Listen, we need to preserve, protect, promote, and pursue true gospel unity in this church. Because the way the enemy seeks to kill, steal, and destroy this church it is like a song of Solomon. What, what did the what did Solomon say? Right. It's, those, it's just those little foxes that 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 rob the vineyard. Right. It's those little things. It's not the big, you know, green. It's those little things. It's those little whispers. It's those little gossip. It's those little things. That little speech. That a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Paul would say. And so we need to be careful in all that we do, maintain the unity of the spirit, and pursue true gospel. Humility. And one way we can do this, right, is by asking good questions of one another and being good listeners. Asking questions such as, how was your week? And then really listening and really caring, right? <laughs> Not the perfunctory, okay, hey, what's going on? But like truly caring about one another's weeks. Asking, how can I help you in this season of life? How can I be praying for you? What has God been teaching you lately? How, how would you just describe the state of your walk with the Lord right now? How can I be in your corner and fight with you in your pursuit of holiness? How can we be praying together for our church? Or what are ways that we can can together serve our church? Those are just some examples, but, but ways that we can be interacting with one another, again, to promote, to pursue, and to preserve and protect the unity of our church. May we not seek after our own pursuits, right? And our own desires and agendas. And listen, this is the benefit of expository preaching. Like, <laughs> the, I don't, right? If we're walking through a book of the Bible, right? The pastor doesn't just think, oh, okay, what are the issues in our church this past week? All right, that's going to be what the sermon's about. And then whack-a-mole, right? You know, I just, bam, bam, right? That, that's not the goal. Like, the, the benefit of expository preaching is that we make the main point of the passage the main point of the sermon. And so I'm not addressing a particular person or issue or concern in our church. I'm just encouraging us together that we maintain the unity of the spirit moving forward. And as we do this, may we seek gospel unity so that, as Jesus said in John chapter 17, that the world may believe. We seek gospel unity because to put on display the transforming power of the gospel through our church and that then we in one spirit with one mind that we would strive side by side together to see lives transformed by the gospel in our neighborhood and among the nations as we make mature and mobilize disciples of Jesus doing it together. Our new gospel identity within us, it leads us to gospel living, which produces a gospel unity among us so that through us, I know it's a lot of words, but that through us, our gospel mission, the Great Commission, that it would be accomplished in our world. Gospel identity, gospel living, gospel unity, gospel mission. They're, they're all building together and they're all connected with one another. And all of this so that God would be glorified, as Paul said in chapter 3, in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. And then finally, quickly, 
Paul calls us in verses 4 through 6 to remember our same foundation. Paul ends this passage by reminding us of our same foundation. He writes in verses 4 through 6, There is one body, one spirit, just as you are called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God. Do you see a theme (laughs) recurring? And Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So because, church, we are united to Christ Jesus, we are built upon the same foundation. And we take part in the same gospel benefits. We, we have our own personalized testimonies of how God has changed our lives through the power of the gospel. But listen, each one of our own personal testimonies, it's like a piece of, of stained glass. And, and then Jesus, he is in the business of placing and ordering these pieces of stained glass into one grand, beautiful mosaic of grace. We, we have individualized stories, but we are all a part of the same story of redemption, of what Jesus is doing in this world. And so while our world today it focuses on all the things that divide us, as the church of Jesus Christ, as members of God's household, as citizens of God's kingdom, as stones in God's temple, let us instead focus on the one who has united us to himself and to one another. And may we then walk worthy of our calling as we together pursue, promote, and protect gospel unity within our church. I'll end with this hymn. You've called us together, O God, by your grace. In grateful obedience, we've come to this place. Our new common mission has only begun. We're learning the blessing of serving as one. We are called, we are freed, we are baptized as one. In the church, all we need can be found in your son. With Christ to unite us and born from above, we witness together to your wondrous love. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to today's sermon. If you have any questions or if we can serve you in any way, please connect with us at newlifeba.org.